0: Good morning brothers and sisters, it's good to be together this morning, let us open our Bibles to Acts chapter, can anybody guess, there are so many chapters in Acts, right? Acts chapter 22, this morning we will consider verses 22 through chapter 23. Verse ten. Now, as you go there, um, let me just begin by saying that the entirety of the Christian life, we could say, depends on a on a question, simple yet profound. It is the question in the title of this sermon: "What if? What if?" I believe that little question explains the turmoil that we see in the Book of Acts. It is undeniable that Paul is in chains and on trial and risking his own life because of a what-if. And what-if, that what-if, once you have considered it, it won't leave you alone. It is a powerful what-if. It is a what-if that changes everything. Now, so far in in our study of the book of Acts, we have learned two facts from Acts. If you're following the notes, the first fact is this. Faith in Christ affects all of life. Faith in Christ affects all of life. Everything about the Christians uh, was now restructured. Everything about the first Christians was now restructured around Jesus. He died and rose again, they said. Therefore, let us live accordingly, with the coming of Jesus and the subsequent sending of the Holy Spirit, the new had come, as we saw last week. And so rather than meeting in the Jerusalem temple, Christians now met together in different places to pray together, to sing together, to give generously, to love one another And to learn together from the apostles. Now think about this. Those meetings in and of themselves were a a very loud statement to the Jews in Jerusalem. What was the statement? The statement was this. The walls of the temple have been torn down. Even before 70 AD and its actual destruction, the temple was already being replaced by something new. Everything was changing. Now the law is about love. The temple is about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the people of God is a worldwide multi-ethnic community. The death and resurrection of Jesus made everything new because now the Spirit of God is here. And he is here to stay. But for the Jews, seeing other Jews engaging in this, like Peter, like James, like Paul, engaging in this new thing was appalling. For them, for the Jews, for many of them, the temple still was the rightful place for meeting. Hence, the stoning of who? Stephen. For them, the law still was a tool of division, hence their strict regulations that created separation between them and the Gentiles. And for them, the Jewish race still was unique, hence their hatred for this new mixed community of Jew and Gentile. For the Christians, both Jew and Gentile who were now walking in the Spirit, all those distinctions were done away with in Christ. Because Christ became everything. Therefore, the clash between Judaism and Christianity was very, very violent. And this takes us to the second fact that we learn from Acts. And here it is. Sufferings are intrinsic to the progress of the gospel. Sufferings are intrinsic to the progress of the gospel. This world-changing message, although a message of pure love, hope, joy, and forgiveness, was always met with fierce, violent, and even deadly resistance. Why is that? Why is it that we can go out into the world and tell people, you are forgiven, you can be reconciled to God, we can be reconciled to one another, and people say, no, I don't want that. I would rather kill you. It is becoming apparent through the study of Acts that this is how the Lord Jesus conquers the world. It is upon the shoulders of a suffering church that the Lord Jesus brings about the new. In other words, what we could say is this. Love is willing to suffer. Even as Paul sought to love, he was met with deadly enemies. Why? Well, because that's what Jesus encountered, and he said that his followers would face the same reality. Because we are what? What are we to Jesus? You know this. We are his body. And the hatred of the world against Jesus, who is now in heaven, is directed toward his church. Hence the question of Jesus to Paul on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? Is that what he said? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus didn't say, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? He said, why are you persecuting me? The attacks against the disciples of Jesus are, in an ultimate sense, an attack against the Lord himself because the church is his body on earth. And if they persecuted Jesus, they will persecute his body. And so Paul, being fully aware of this, he says, all right, let's go to Jerusalem so I can do some suffering. And there were very intense sufferings for Paul at the hands of the Jews from Asia in Jerusalem. You remember he was beaten almost to death right outside of the temple until a Roman commander, saved him. But he was put in chains just like Agabus, remember the prophet, had predicted in chapter 21 verse 11. Having received a short break from the beating and being now protected by the Roman tribune, Paul offered His first defense speech in which he, remember, he recounted how the risen Jesus had called him into the ministry and how it was all perfectly consistent with the will of the God of our fathers, as Ananias had said. Jesus, in other words, Paul is saying Jesus is not a contradiction of the Old Testament, Paul was saying. Rather, Jesus is the key to its proper interpretation. He's the focal point. He's the fulfillment of all Old Testament revelation. And so the angry mobs listened to Paul until he mentioned that one word in chapter 22, verse 21. What was that last word? Gentiles. Here everything goes back to chaos. And so in verse 22... Paul's sufferings resume. Paul's sufferings resume. How? With a hateful rejection. With a hateful rejection. Verse 22. Up until this word, they listened. The Jews listened to Paul. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth. Imagine listening to that about yourself. For he should not be allowed to live and as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air they were pretty angry upon hearing the word gentile the jews lost it again not only is jesus risen from the dead effectively reversing all the accusations that were made against him and throwing them back at the jews But God himself is now inviting the Gentiles to come in. God is doing that? That's too much. For the Jews, this was the ultimate challenge to, this is the way we've always done it. But this only reveals how deep their blindness was, just like Paul's had been prior to his conversion on the road to Damascus. What do the Old Testament scriptures say? Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, if you would. I want us to read a few verses here that explain what the Old Testament Scriptures actually said. Remember that in chapter 2 of Galatians, Paul had to confront who? Another another apostle. Peter. That's right. He had to confront Peter for his actions, his behavior. He along with other believing Jews, including Barnabas, were acting hypocritically by distancing themselves from the Gentiles when it was convenient. So in his letter of Galatians, Paul, once again he explains that in Christ there is no distinction and that unity between Jews and Gentiles was the plan all along. And so in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, we read this. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of who? Abraham. Interesting. Those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Verse 8. And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify who? The Gentiles by faith, listen to this, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Now, let me uh, me stop you right here. How would you define the gospel right now? You don't have to answer out loud, just in your mind. How would you define the gospel? What is the gospel? You thought about it? Okay. Listen to how the scripture defined the gospel here. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, what is the gospel? In you shall all the nations be blessed. That's the gospel. In you shall all the nations be blessed. What's the gospel according to verse 8? The whole world, people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, including people from Chile. Can you believe that? It's beautiful. The whole world, from every tribe, nation, and tongue, are welcome to become children of God through faith in Jesus. How? The answer is in verses 13 and 14 of the same chapter. What did Christ do? Christ redeemed us. From the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. What did we deserve? A curse. But Christ took that curse upon himself. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. Verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to who? Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith what is then the Abrahamic blessing the spirit of God given to both Jew and Gentile alike that's it the Holy Spirit Jew and Gentile united to each other and to God by one and the same spirit as we sang a moment ago here is love Vast as the heavens, countless as the stars above are the souls that he has ransomed. Precious daughters, treasured sons, we are called to feast forever on a love beyond our time. Glorious Father, Son, and Spirit, now with men are intertwined. But this should not have been a surprise to the Jews. This should not have been a surprise to the Jews. Of his coming servant, God says through Isaiah, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Chapter 42, verse 6. I will make you as a light for the, can you guess? Nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth, Isaiah 49, 6. All the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God, Isaiah 52, verse 10. No wonder Jesus tells his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, to go and to be his witnesses where? In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and where else? To the end of the earth. As far as the Old Testament revelation goes, Paul is doing nothing new, nothing new. He was sent to the Gentiles because that was God's plan from the beginning, even back to the covenant with Abraham. And in Christ and by the Spirit, this is now a reality. But the Jews, rather than being a light to the nations, which was their original purpose, became a burden. They became prideful. They became exclusive. So much so that when Paul mentions the word Gentiles, they said, let's kill him. Let's kill him. Enter the Roman tribune once again. To save the day once again. But not really. Not really. His alternative was to protect Paul from the crowds who now want to kill him again. But by implementing a torturous examination. Torturous examination. Seeing the commotion, verse 24, the tribune order... Him, Paul, to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why there were shoutings against him like this. Now, the flogging, this would have been a very brutal, brutal flogging, similar to what Jesus received before his crucifixion. One commentator describes the whips that they would have used as, quote, a wooden handle ...with leather thongs attached to which are tied metal or bone chips, end quote. This flogging that Paul was about to receive... ...would have ripped his flesh open, exposing muscle and bone. It was a horrific form of torture to get the truth out of the man in question. So the tribune goes from hero to villain very quickly. Thankfully... Paul knew his rights, so in verse 25, he presents a lawful objection, a lawful objection that will spare Paul some excruciating pain. Verse 25, But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. Verse 27. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. Verse 28. The tribune answered, I bought this, meaning my citizenship for a large sum. And then implied there is, how did you get yours, Paul? Paul said, but I am a Roman citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him by torture withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Undoubtedly, Paul, as we have seen many, many times, Paul was ready. He was willing to accept the consequences of living for and by the truth, whatever they might be. He was a man willing to suffer. But Paul did not volunteer to suffer unnecessarily if it could be avoided. Paul knew Roman law, and he made use of it to his advantage. This is not the first time that Paul does something like this. Back in Philippi, you remember, he also made use of his Roman citizenship to call out the magistrates who had treated him unlawfully. Paul did call out injustices when he saw them even if the people committing them were high officials. And we certainly don't see Paul doing this all the time, but the times we do see him, we must pay attention. His submission to authority, if you think about it, his submission to authority, which he writes about in Romans 13, was certainly not blind or absolute as if everything they do goes. Once again, we must Mention Paul's consistency with his own teaching here. Why did Paul, in a way, resist the authorities both at Philippi and now in Jerusalem and not let them do what they intended to do in the first place? The answer is, believe it or not, in Romans chapter 13. The authorities in, Ro- in here in Jerusalem, they were about to engage in unlawful practices. And according to Paul's Prescriptive writing in Romans 13, the rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to what? Bad. But if you do wrong, Paul said, be afraid, for he, meaning the ruler, does not bear the sword or the whip. In vain, he is an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer, the wrongdoer. Was Paul a wrongdoer here? He was not a wrongdoer. His conduct throughout his entire ordeal was good, not bad. He was a man of love and of peace. We have already established that. Paul, therefore, should not have been afraid of the tribune because the tribune is supposed to enforce justice, not injustice. And it is unjust to punish a man without knowing why. So Paul essentially told the centurion and the tribune, you men don't get away with this, for you too are under law. It is also interesting, have you noticed how Paul, both in Philippi and Jerusalem, Paul seems to have waited until the authorities were caught red-handed. It is interesting how he does that. I don't know exactly why he did this. Maybe he wanted to remind them of their duty to be just lawful and fair rather than impulsive, arbitrary and cruel. Maybe, just maybe, Paul is telling these rulers in very indirect, mild ways, you too are bound by a law greater than yourselves. Justice comes from above. Justice comes from above. Whatever the case might be, this presented yet another opportunity for Paul. So we read in verse 30. That on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he, meaning the tribune, unbound Paul and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. So we are about to hear now Paul's second defense speech. Paul's second defense speech. The first one was right outside of the temple premises and rather informal. This time it will be in front of the highest religious court in Jerusalem known as the, anybody know? Sanhedrin, which was made up of 70 men, both Pharisees and Sadducees, plus the high priest. A man named Ananias, not to be confused with the Ananias mentioned in chapter 22. There are two different Ananias here. The one mentioned in verse 2 of chapter 23 is the man in charge of this Sanhedrin, this council before which Paul is now standing to make his second defense speech. So Paul once again begins to speak. And his starting point in verse 1 of chapter 23 is rather interesting. Looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. For Paul, having a clear conscience was of utmost importance. He will mention it again in chapter 24, verse 16, during his next trial. For now, let me ask you this. Do those words in verse 1 strike you as aggressive or insulting or provocative in any way? They sound rather innocent at first sight. And yet in verse 2, we read that the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by Paul to strike him in the mouth. That's pretty aggressive if you ask me. Why? Why did Ananias, the high priest, commanded Paul to be struck in the mouth? Well, that's not an easy question to answer. But I propose the following. An appeal to conscience is essentially an appeal to what? To God. An appeal to conscience is essentially an appeal to God. For only God knows what? The conscience. And if Paul has a clear conscience, which only the Lord can see, then Paul is not being persecuted by God but only by them. It is almost as if Paul were saying, God is my witness. God is my witness before you, yet you stand here against me, which by implication means you are opposing God himself. So Ananias ordered Paul to be struck in the mouth, essentially telling him, How dare you? How dare you? Now, who was Ananias? This is very important, brothers and sisters. Ananias, contrary to Paul, he was a man with a troubled, what? Conscience. For aggression normally reveals that the conscience has been pricked. Pricked. He was probably bothered by the what if. What if. According to the ancient Jewish historian Josephus, Ananias, the high priest, was a man in love with money, angry and corrupt in his relationships with the Romans. One theory even says that Ananias was eventually murdered by a Jewish celad named Menahem because of his corrupt dealings with Rome. Whatever the case might be, Ananias was not an example of godliness and virtue. He was known for greed, violence, and even corruption. And yet he was the high priest, which means the entire Jewish system had become corrupt. This is the setup for the exchange that follows in verses three to five, which is kind of interesting. Then Paul said to him, after being struck in the mouth, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? I believe Paul is here once again calling out an injustice. According to the Jewish law, Paul had the right to a proper hearing. And yet the high priest ordered him to be struck without even giving him that much. He did not act according to the law. Now, the expression whitewashed wall, like the the expression used by Jesus, whitewashed tombs, which Jesus used of the Pharisees, refers to something that appears to be clean on the outside, but deep on the inside, beneath the white paint, there is nothing but filth and uncleanness. Paul is basically accusing Ananias of being what? Hypocrite. So, in verse 4... Those who stood by Paul said, would you revile God's high priest? They immediately accused Paul of breaking a civic justice law written in Exodus chapter 22, verse 28, which Paul himself quotes in verse 5 when he says, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. What happened in verse 5? It's difficult to know brothers. It is very difficult to know what happens in verse 5. Suggestions abound. Some have said that Paul did not see the high priest due to poor eyesight and therefore he apologized. But that's very very speculative. Other suggestion says that Paul did not hear the order at all and so he did not know that it came from the high priest. But Paul spoke directly to the man, didn't he? So I don't think that that's the answer. Another suggestion is that Paul did not know that Ananias was the high priest that year because he had been away from Jerusalem for so long during his missionary journeys. But that's unlikely since the high priest would have been easily identifiable, especially for a man like Paul. He was a Pharisee after all. I think the most likely explanation, and maybe you will not be convinced by this, and that is okay, but I think the most likely explanation, and I won't be dogmatic about this, is that Paul is speaking with a certain level of irony here. There's our Reformed commentator, J.A. Alexander, who agrees with that. So if I'm correct, verse 5 uh, would sound something like this. Uh, here's a paraphrase of it. Brothers, I can quote the law verbatim. It's not that I don't know the law. I just don't know this man to be a high priest. In other words, the true high priest of the new temple and the new Jerusalem is not this man. Instead, he is in heaven. Whether you're convinced of that or not, keep in mind these facts. Paul knew Jewish law. His statement regarding Ananias was true. The hypocrisy of the Jewish leadership was flagrant. And Paul had already proven himself to be a man of love and peace. I'm siding with Paul on this one. You see, Paul was not a man of what-ifs. That's not how he lived his life. He did not live upon conditionals. He lived upon facts. And so he quickly moves into the second though short section of his speech before the Sanhedrin, and it is summed up like this. I believe in the resurrection. I believe in the resurrection. Verse 6, very interesting verse. Now when Paul perceived that one part of the council were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, He cried out in the council, I am a Pharisee and a son of a Pharisee. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. I've said this many times. The heart of Paul's trials through the end of the book is because of the resurrection. Now, the Sadducees, they were not very happy people. And you know that because they were sad, you see. Uh, that's the second time making that joke, and I think it's a good one. So, anyway, the Sadducees were the rich. They had a ton of money, they were powerful, they made up the majority of the Sanhedrin. They denied the fact of the resurrection. The Pharisees, on the other hand, denied the source of the resurrection being the Messiah. So Paul, knowing his audience, with expert knowledge, he threw this bomb right in the middle of it. You guys, he said, are united in your hatred against me, but you know you are divided when it comes to the resurrection. So which one is it? Which one is it? Paul was addressing the fact that at least some in the council, the Pharisees, agreed with him. They believed in the resurrection. In fact, resurrection is an Old Testament theme. That the dead will be raised is the hope of Israel. What Paul is saying is simply this. That resurrection has come in Christ. But the effects were, as always, chaos, anger, confusion, dissension. But at the heart of it all stood that what if. So we arrived next at the central issue. The central issue, and you know the central issue already, what if. What if, verses 7 through 10. And when Paul has said this, because he knew his audience, right, he split them right in the middle. A dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man, and here it comes. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be, would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. This is the what if that ran through Paul's entire ordeal and will continue to do so through the end of the book. But even beyond that, This is the what if that confronts the world, even today, and will do so through the end of world history. It will never stop. What if? What if? What if a man named Jesus really did rise from the dead? If he did, then nothing can ever be the same. Nothing. If a man named Jesus rose from the dead and left the tomb empty, then nothing in this world could ever be the same. Nothing. If he did rise from the dead, then nothing can ever be the same, nor for the Jews, nor for the Gentiles, not for you, not for me. If Jesus rose from the dead, then everything changes. But as it is, we, we are Christians, aren't we? So for us, it's not a what if. We are not what if people, we are sins people. Since Jesus rose from the dead, everything has changed. So I leave you with a challenge in the form of a question. Cannot believe we're almost done with the sermon. It's only 11.32. Can you believe that? We have more time. I can extend. I won't do that. I'll leave you with a challenge in the form of a question. Am I living as if Christ is risen? Am I living as if Christ is risen? Is the image of the heavenly man being progressively impressed upon me? Am I looking more like him? If we live in light of the resurrection, then guess what? We will be like Paul. In what sense? In the sense that we will be a sting to the world. Like Paul was to the Jews. Speaking of the difference between the city of man, meaning the world, and the city of God, meaning the church, someone stated the following, and I will quote The city of man, the world, is quite content to be what it has always been, it doesn't like to be disrupted. And the church is a disruption, like Paul was to the Jews, may I add. I continue with the quote, The church's very existence is a rebuke to the city of man, to the world's pretensions, idolatries, violence, lusts, and perversions. The rebuke stings. And the city of man responds violently to the sting. We have seen this in the life of Paul. Consequently, we will only complete the mission of Jesus in the way Jesus did. Please don't miss this. We will only complete the mission of Jesus the way Jesus did, by suffering. Brothers and sisters, we have to remember this. By suffering, we're not meant to be friends with the world. By enduring hatred and unreasonable opposition through brutal attacks from the world and sometimes even from other citizens of the city of God. That opposition, however, the author continues, does not spell defeat. It's the way of victory. When we suffer in Christ, we dynamite the foundations of the city so that a new city can be built from the rubble. But the church can never be complacent. We are still called to bear what? The cross. If the church never provokes the city of man, we are probably not being faithful to the crucified Lord of the church who has called us to take up the cross and follow him, end quote. I think it is important, brothers and sisters, to remember that we are not called to be friends with the world. We are called to love the world. In just a few days, in just a few days, North Point Community Church, led by Andy Stanley, will host a conference called Unconditional where they will discuss quote, ways to support LGBTQ plus parents and their children, end quote. Now, we love everybody. We need to love everybody. But then they added this, quote, no matter what theological stance you hold, we invite you to listen, reflect, and learn as we approach this topic from the quieter middle space. End quote. So I finish here. This is where I finish. Since Jesus died and rose again, since Jesus died and rose again, Christians have lost the possibility of sitting in the quieter middle Space. My challenge to Andy Stanley, to North Point Community Church, and to every single one of us here right now who bear the name of Jesus Christ is this. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, go ahead with the conference and let us live any way we please. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, then let us stop pursuing the acceptance of the world instead let us love sinners with the truth all the way into the kingdom even if they hate us for it this is what paul did this is what jesus did let us do the same let us pray father we thank you for this truth thank you for the example of the apostle paul Even he himself said, I am not there yet, but I pursue the end goal. Let us be like that, to pursue the end goal. Oh, Father, help us not to become complacent and to pretend as if the church is supposed to make friendship with the world. We are not called to do that. We are called to love sinners all the way into the kingdom even if we what what we receive in return is hatred oh father help us to stand firm upon this truth and not to become complacent so we ask that by your spirit you will help us to be imitators of the lord jesus and secondly of the apostle paul help us to love our neighbor Enough to speak the truth in love and accept the consequences faithfully. Thank you for this church. Thank you for Grace Community Church. Thank you for our community around us. Help us to love people the way Jesus did. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.